As I mentioned, we've been going through a sermon series on the Psalms, called it Divine Soul Music, because we see the, the various psalmists, David and Moses and Solomon and others, pouring out their hearts to God in a very raw, very real, very personal way. We're coming to the end here, and we've been talking about uh, the sovereignty of God as it's expressed in some of the Psalms. Uh, we looked at Psalm 94 last week, which I'll refer to a couple times. Here this morning we come to Psalm 91, one of the beloved psalms in the Psalter. A psalm that celebrates God as a refuge, God as a fortress, a place of safety. And this is a cry that we all have. We're all looking for a safe place. We're all looking for safety. We're all looking for shelter. And this psalm tells us where to find it. Let me read it for us as we come before the word of God this morning. Psalm 91, his very living word. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So ends, again, the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Let me pray for us as we come before it this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we come before you now to ask your blessing as we come before your word. Speak to us this morning. And we ask that you would fulfill the promise that you yourself have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty. That instead it accomplishes everything that you purpose for it and is successful in the very things for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us learn this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. All of this, Father, once again, we ask as always in the precious and wonderful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, there's a new term that's being used out there in the culture today, in society. We hear it more and more often as time goes by. The term, uh, a safe space. We need safe spaces. You hear it used in schools. We're going to set up a safe 
workspace or a college or even in the workplace, even in church. 2010, our own denomination came out with a strategic plan, and one of the proposals in that plan was to create safe spaces where people could discuss and debate theology without worrying about being brought up on disciplinary charges for some false or aberrant teaching. Safe spaces. There's an organization called the Safe Space Network. This is how they define a safe space. It's a place where anyone can relax, be able to fully express without fear of being made to feel uncomfortable, unwelcome, or unsafe on account of biological sex, race or ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, cultural background, religious affiliation, age, or physical or mental ability. A place where the rules guard each person's self-respect and dignity and strongly encourage everyone to respect others. That's a safe space, according to the world around us. Notice how, at least I notice to me, these are very individualistic kinds of definitions. It's a place for me to feel safe. It's a place for me to express myself without being uncomfortable, without feeling unwelcome. That's very, I don't know, arbitrary it seems. Very dependent upon how I feel or the whim of the moment. This idea of freedom of expression and action without consequences. Because all you have to respect whatever crazy thing I do or say. Now there's other ways people try to create safe spaces. In the build-up to the year 2000, we saw people building shelters in the desert. A safe place to avoid the meltdown that was sure to come in Y2K. Or panic rooms from those who would attack. Gun-free zones or people who think a different method is better, open carry of weapons. We all want some place where we can feel free from danger or harm. That's natural, and that's understandable. That's a desire from our heart. We all want a place of safety. We want some place of refuge to protect us. Now, not surprisingly, the Bible also is concerned about safety and refuge, and in a couple primary ways. The first is the Bible is concerned about physical safety, the duty that we have to protect life. We know there is a command among the ten not to murder, and that that command carries with it not just the prohibition against murder, but the obligation to protect life and preserve it. We see its practical application in the well-known statutes in the Mosaic Law, that on these flat roofs that they have in the Middle East, you have to build a little a wall, a little parapet around it, just to make sure no one falls off and hurts themselves or dies accidentally. That's practical. That's wise. You might think of a fence around a swimming pool as a similar kind of application today. But there's a second way in which the Bible addresses safety, refuge, and protection. And in this broader sense, the Bible knows, because God is not unaware. What did we see last week in Psalm 94? Understand, dullest of people, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? God knows. God sees what's 
going on. The Bible recognizes that life is dangerous, and it's especially dangerous for those who follow God, for his people. God's enemies are our enemies, and that brings danger to our lives. Again, Psalm 94 that we looked at last week is this lament, this prayer for God to protect us from our enemies and to take vengeance on our behalf against them. Not revenge, legal, authoritative vengeance. We saw also in Psalm 94 one of these startling claims that we see in the Psalms from time to time. When you read the Psalms, every now and then you should, you should notice that the Psalms say things that should make you go, well, wait a second. Is that really true? Psalm 94 said this about the enemies. They band together against the righteous and condemn them to death. Yet, the Lord is my stronghold, my rock of refuge. They killed me. They murdered me. Yet, God is my refuge. (laughs) That should make you stop and go, wait a second. And yet, there's the hope that is expressed inherently in that statement even if I die, God is my refuge. There is, is, I think, implied in that psalm the expectation, the hope of resurrection and eternal life. So it's appropriate to turn to Psalm 91 as a celebration of God himself as our refuge because from a biblical perspective, the only real safe space, the only real refuge, the only real protection is in the shelter of the Most High God, in the shadow of the Almighty, looking to God as a refuge and a fortress worthy of our trust. This psalm is a wonderful companion to Psalm 46, uh, from which Martin Luther wrote the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So in the Bible, a safe space is not a place where people can go to do and say what they want, some sort of artificial safe area. A safe space is not weapons to protect us or lack of weapons to avoid harming us. We look to all sorts of safe things or refuges. Safe space is not found in a political party or a political idea. Safety is not found in an economic theory or economic practice. Safety is not found in a strong military or being a pacifist, neutral nation. Safety is not found in either a strong border or an open border. Biblically speaking, scripturally speaking, the only real safe space is in the presence and under the protection of God Almighty. That is the theme of this psalm that I want to explore this morning. We'll look at it in three parts. The psalm divides very easily. Verses 1 and 2, the psalmist himself declares his faith in the Most High. In verses 3 to 13, it's as if the psalmist is inviting the reader, the hearer, to join him in declaring God as his refuge, the same declaration of faith. And then it ends very interestingly in verses 14 to 16 with God speaking himself. This is what I will do. This is the promise I am making to you if you will make me your refuge. Turn to me in faith. So we'll look at each of those in turn here this morning. One thing I want to say as an introductory note about the psalm is remember we're dealing with wisdom literature here. Um, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, all wisdom books. 
and we've talked about this before, one of the key characteristics or features of wisdom literature is that it speaks in general truths, um, often accompanied by incredible poetry or vivid imagery. And there's a danger in taking these wisdom statements too literally or taking them as hard and fast promises. Because if you do, it can lead you down a bad, faulty path, both in what you believe and what you practice. A couple well-known examples. Psalm tw- or Proverbs 22.6. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. People take that as a promise. It's a statement of wisdom. If you do this, generally it will be true that your child will not depart from that way. But we all have experienced it ourselves or have seen it in families that we know. Parents who have been faithful, have done everything they could to raise their children up in the way that they should go, and yet when the child is old, they depart. That doesn't invalidate the proverb. It just says, generally it is true that if we raise our children the right way, they'll turn out right. My favorite example is from Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Don't get into an argument with a fool and begin looking like a fool. Don't get drawn into their foolish way of debating and arguing. Look at Facebook. Now, Proverbs 26.5 says something completely different. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Don't let a fool go on making a foolish argument. Correct him. Now, these are right next to each other, one verse right after the other. Is this a promise? Is it a hard and fast instruction? No, this is wisdom. Knowing when to do which is a matter of wisdom. That's what wisdom literature is all about. And it's the same with this psalm, and you're going to see why I bring this up, hopefully, here in a little bit. You need to know the context. You need to know the situation and how to apply it properly. All right. The wisdom here in this psalm begins right in verse 1. A declaration by the psalmist that God is his refuge. And it begins with, I think, a little proverb. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's kind of an obvious statement if you, if you think about it. If you're dwelling in the shelter of God, there's shadow there. And, and you can kind of go, well, duh. Of course, if that's where I go, that's where I find shelter. So what? Well, the so what is the who, the place, <clears throat> the person. This is the most high God. This is the almighty God. The most high, El Elyon. The Almighty, El Shaddai, that song that we like to sing from time to time. This is not then just any protector. This is not ju- then just any dwelling place. It can't get any better. It can't get any stronger than the God who is God of gods and King of kings, the Creator and Lord of all. This is where you want to go if you want safety. The Most High God, the Almighty God. And so in response to this truth, this psalmist makes a declaration of faith. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's where I'm going. That's the safe place. In fact, that's the safest place I can be. And so if that's it, that's where I'm going. 
I will say to the Lord, this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my God. I trust you. I'm going to have faith in you to protect me, to watch over me, to keep me safe, to keep me secure. And so we have this declaration of faith in the Most High, Almighty God. It seems like a a very simple, obvious thing to do. If this is God, if this is who he is, if this is his character, then why would we not run to him for sanctuary? And yet look around. How few people make that decision. No, give me a safe space in a corner of a school somewhere. Give me a gun-free zone. No, give me open carry. No, give me a border wall. No, give me open borders. How foolish we are. Safety is found in God and in God alone, always and only. So now the psalmist makes an appeal in the next several verses. He seems to know and anticipate that others are not going to make that same declaration of faith or maybe are reluctant to. And so he describes it for them. And it's an extended invitation, I think, from verses 3 to 13, where we see the psalmist describe the benefits. For you, he says, for you this is true. God being your refuge and your fortress. Poetic, vivid, vivid imagery that's piled up one against and one after the other to drive home the point. This is our God and this is where we find true safety. So he delivers us from the fowler in verse 3. From the deadly pestilence. From the hunter and from the disease. From the plague. From the people in the disease that would seek to kill us and do us harm. And then this poetic description in verse 4. God will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you find refuge. The pinions are the larger feathers at the outer edge of the wing. To the very outer edge of his wing... He will protect you and shelter you and watch over you. He will be your shield and your buckler. Some translations have rampart. I like buckler because it echoes the pinion wing shield buckler. A buckler is a tiny shield uh, that you carry for, I guess, close in defense. Protection is the idea. And if God is protecting you, then verses 5 and 6 are true. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or destruction that wastes at noonday. Night or day, God is watching over you. God is protecting you. God is with you. One of my children had night terrors when she was younger. Watching that is terrifying. I can't imagine the experience. The terrors of the night, the things that when you're trying to fall asleep and you can't, are just eating away at your brain. The fears that rise up and won't let you fall asleep. Or during the daytime, when you can see it right out in the open, there's my enemy. That person wants to harm me. And I know many of you in this group have experienced both of those kinds of fears. This psalm says, you will not fear those things. If you look to the Lord your God as your refuge, both the known and the unknown dangers of night and day. And then a further description, and here's where we can get into trouble if we don't take this as wisdom literature. Verses 7 and 8. 
A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You'll only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. God's vengeance, God's repayment for their wickedness. That's all you'll see. Others are falling all around you, but you are safe. Well, that leads to, I think, a natural question. What in the world is it that you're afraid of? What do you fear? What keeps you up at night? What enemies are plotting against you? What are the unknown terrors that cause you to panic or be afraid? Some people are afraid of genetically modified food, GMOs. Vaccines, some of them are dangerous, some are not. Terrorists, there's, a, there's fear, right? Look at where they strike. Look at how they strike. The Zika virus, that's the terror today. AIDS, climate change, you can pile them up one example after the other. The psalm is saying, whatever it is that you fear... Think of all the phobias. Fear of darkness, fear of the open spaces, fear of airplanes, fear of crowds, fear of loneliness, fear of this, fear of that. Whatever it is that you fear, the psalm is saying, do not be afraid. God has covered you with his wings. God is shielding you. The psalmist is appealing to God's character, what kind of a God he is, and also to his own experience with God. So he turns to verses 9 to 13. Just like I have made God my refuge, he says in verse 9, if you make the Lord your dwelling place, no evil will be allowed to befall you, and no plague will come near your tent. He'll command his angels to guard you. They themselves will lift you up so that you don't stub your toe against a stone and fall. You'll tread on lions and adders and young lions and serpents will be trampled under your feet. These are amazing claims that the psalm is making. No evil, no plague, no harm. Angels themselves to protect you, treading on lions and snakes. Why does it always have to be snakes? Is this true? Is this a guarantee? Should I put a box up here and handle snakes every Sunday? Is that the teaching of this psalm? (laughs) No. Let's understand the broader context of Scripture and of wisdom literature. We know. What do we know from the Bible? I always tell the congregation, go back to what you know. When you see something puzzling, go back to what you know. What do you know? God has promised that his people will suffer trials and persecution. Enemies will rise up against them. Some will even lose their lives. So how can God make these claims to us in Psalm 91? There has to be a broader context, a broader application. Not to become a lion tamer or a snake handler, because that's folly. What do these images mean? What do these claims mean? Let me give you two thoughts. The one is, I think, the obvious one from this psalm is that even in the midst of these things, just like in Psalm 94, even if we're killed by our enemies, God is our refuge. How? Because we have life in him. 
and life for all eternity. Even in the midst of these things, God will see us through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You see, what matters is that God is with us and that we are with him, not the things that are going around, going on around us and to us. And we've all experienced this in one way, shape, or form. I, I shared this with Kathleen this week, and she goes, you know, Rachel and I figured this out weeks ago. When Rachel was in the hospital, right before she got into the hospital, we bought a new car. First new car since 2003. And I'm this is cool. I have a new car. It's fun. It's got gadgets that I've never seen before and things I can do. And I don't know, it was 40 days or 50 days after we bought the car. I was driving down to the hospital. We were having an appointment post-surgery to see how to manage her care. I'm sitting at the end of the on-ramp to get onto the freeway and a huge truck rear-ended me. That car was totaled. Now, what's the natural reaction to that? I just got a new car, (laughs) and it's gone. God, why are you doing this to me? But you know, here's the thought I had. The car I had been driving, the car I'm driving again now, is a small car. What if I had been in that car? What if that's the car that I had been rear-ended in? I I wouldn't have walked away from that accident with just a little bit of a sore back. Major harm, major damage would likely have happened. What if, <clears throat> what if God gave us that nice new car for 40 days just to protect me from that truck? In the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of these terrible things that happen in life, God protects us. Now, You all have that experience. I know you do. In one way, shape, or form. For one thing, you've been saved. God saved you. But I I, I look around the room. I know stories. I can see with Eric and Ellen. I see it with Judy. I see it with others. Things that have happened, and God has seen us through these things. We all have this testimony. And I think this is much of what the psalm is referring to here. Whether it's cancer or disease or broken relationships, broken marriages harm, direct harm from others, financial stress, financial loss, without a job, without a home, without a car, all these things that can afflict us, not a single one is supposed to bring us down. Now I say that, we've been through the laments in the Psalms. It's natural for us to mourn. It's natural for us to grieve. But in the end, as we look to God as our refuge and our strength, we ought to find comfort and peace and hope and joy. These are testimonies that we're supposed to share with one another. Pass them on in our family. I've got them in mind. I know stories from my family. I wouldn't be here if God hadn't done certain things. And I know that's true for some of you as well. So there's that broader context of things, but there's a more specific thing we need to look at as well. What about these lions and snakes in 13? How are we supposed to understand this? Let me offer this thought. Who in scripture is described like a prowling lion? Who in scripture is the crafty, tempting serpent? Our enemy, Satan. One thing he tries to do to us, 
to tempt us with and to convince us of when trials come is that God is absent. God doesn't care. God is remote. He's not your refuge. He's not your fortress. All that's a lie. So come and follow me. Do what I do. Follow me. Break bread with the evil. Break bread with the wicked. God's not going to do anything. God said he'd protect you. God said thousands would fall by your side. But here you are in the midst of trouble. Here you are falling. God's not reliable. Well, those are the words of the tempter. These words he used with Jesus in the 40 days in the desert. Jump off the temple. God made a promise. His angels will protect you. He won't let your foot hit a rock. How did Jesus respond? (laughs) Do not put the Lord God to the test. We cannot take this psalm and use it to test God. I cannot take this psalm and go stomping around on snakes or cuddling up to lions and think that I'm going to be safe. That's testing God, and that's, that's wrong. Do not put the Lord to the test. Don't test him by pursuing evil, by chasing after wicked people and their wicked behavior, behavior and thinking you will be safe. That's folly, not wisdom. And we see that theme repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. But even more than that, we have to remember that Satan is a defeated enemy. He has fallen like lightning from the sky. He may prowl around like a lion looking for those he can devour, but we are held safe in the hand of Christ our Savior. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand or out of the Father's hand. Even in death, God is our refuge. And so God himself takes up the call in the latter part of this psalm. God himself calls us to him. Takes up the gospel message, if you will. Repent from sin. Turn to me for forgiveness. Believe in the Son that I sent to you. Trust in and receive his work for you. That perfect obedience on your behalf. The death to pay for your sin the raising to life as a deposit, a down payment on our own future resurrection to life forever. There's a foretaste of this gospel call, I think, in Psalm 91. Now God speaks, and it's clear that God is speaking. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's a promise from God. Long life and his salvation. How is that not a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the gospel call to eternal life in Christ Jesus? Now, I hope and trust that many, if not most of you here this morning, hopefully all of you, are believers in Christ. And you know that protection that you have in God as your refuge. You've experienced it. You've got the scars and the stories to tell about it. You've already repented and believed in Jesus. That testimony of his refuge that all of us have. 
Others may not yet know that refuge. And if not, the time is now. The world is going crazy around us. There may not be much time left. Flee to refuge, to the Almighty, Most High God, and do it now. You might think you can protect yourself. You might think you can create your own safe space or run to some artificially created safe space to find refuge. But you won't. Because the troubles of this world are not the biggest troubles. Look back again at verses 7 and 8. While the believer stands, thousands and even 10,000 fall by his side. The believer is seeing the recompense the recompensation, the repayment. Word we use today, a simple word, payback. The wicked are getting payback. The wicked are getting their just reward of God's judgment, his punishment for their sin. Part of the glory of the gospel <laughs> is that God must judge sin. But what he does in and through Jesus is he saves us from himself. (laughs) The offended party takes action to repair the relationship. That's glorious. Who does that? Who among us, if we're the offended party, goes and makes it right? We wait for the other person to ask for forgiveness. You make it right. You pay it back. God himself protects us from himself and repairs our relationship with him. I can say this this morning. I know many of you can as well. The Lord, the Lord is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is the one in whom I trust. Here's the question. Is he yours? Let me pray for us. Our God, our Almighty Father, we do look to you for our only refuge, our only hope. We're reminded this morning of that psalm we looked at at the beginning of the year, Psalm 27, where David has just one request, that he might dwell in your temple, that he might learn of you, and that he might see your beauty. Let us find refuge in you as we dwell in your shadow. Father, show us your glory and your beauty, your wonder, your power and your strength. Teach us about yourself and remind us of all the ways already in which you have shown yourself to be our protector, our refuge, and our strength. Turn our hearts and minds to Christ Jesus, our Savior, remembering the work that he has done for us. Humbling himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, so that we might be saved. We know that you have raised him up and seated him at your right hand, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to your glory. Father, we look forward to that day, and we ask that it might come, and it might come quickly, that it would be a day of rejoicing for us, and that it would be a day of rejoicing for many who hear these words as well. Bless us, watch over us in all that we do. 
We're thankful for the work you have done for us, the gift that you have given to us. In Jesus, our Savior, we ask all these things in his name. Amen.